Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Sorry I have been MIA, but I have been dealing with health issues that are making it hard to do pretty much anything. I really want more than anything to be able to put episodes out regularly, and hopefully I will get there someday. I hope you are all staying sane during this very bizarre time in history. As some of you may know, I actually moved to California at the end of last year, and it has been insanely hot here lately. Just two days ago, it hit 121 degrees in my area, which is just two degrees shy of the all-time heat record here. Because of that, my schedule has been super fucked up, and, you know, I don't have a job in the daytime at the moment, so I'm pretty much a vampire now. But other than that, staying mostly sane. Well, as usual, today's episode is brought to you by my wonderful patrons. If you would like to become a patron, simply click the link in the show notes. I really like to send out goodies for every major holiday and various other times throughout the year. And I'm actually about to send off a batch of goodies today. So I'd love it if you join. That would be wonderful. And you will become my new favorite person. But on to today's episode, I will be discussing two cases in which catfishing led to murder. The first case is the tragic death of Breck Bedner, a sweet boy that was betrayed by someone he trusted. And the second case is the murder of Bill Payne and Billie Jean Hayworth. And I promise you it is one of the most bizarre stories you'll ever hear. And these were both previously Patreon episodes, but I promise I will try my damnedest to get out some new Alaska episodes very soon. So, I hope this episode gives you something to keep you occupied during this strange time. And if you know of any other strange catfish murders, I would love to hear about them. You can follow me on Twitter at MidnightSunPod or email me at MidnightSunMurder at gmail. Now let's get into the first case. Breck Bedner was a teenage boy in Essex, England, who really loved playing games online with his school friends. They had headsets and could communicate with each other while playing. In 2013, Breck was 14 and a world of opportunities was opening up before him. He was a member of the local air training corps, which is a youth military program. And he was becoming passionate about computers and could really see himself having a career involving them someday. His parents were divorced and he was living with his mother and three siblings, to whom he was extremely close. His dad lived nearby and was still very much in the picture, and he spent a ton of time with Breck as well. That year, Breck and his school friends had joined a private game server run by a guy named Lewis Danes. Neither Breck nor his friends knew Lewis in person, but he seemed to have a lot in common and loved playing games as much as they did. He was also a couple of years older than the boys and extremely knowledgeable about computer technology and was willing to share that information as well as let the guys game on his server. Over time, as he got to know the boys, he revealed that even though he was only 17, he was already working in the tech world and was in fact running his own company. Breck was fascinated as he really had a passion for computers and he wanted to work in tech in the future. This was the first person he had met that could give him great first-hand knowledge of that world, and Breck was easily drawn in by Lewis's stories, his swanky job, 
and the many overseas business trips that he took. Over time, the two of them began to speak quite regularly. Lewis was very worldly, and he and Breck began to discuss subjects like religion and politics. Lewis was very passionate about his own views, and slowly began to change Breck's mind on a number of topics. Lewis kept strange hours because, as he said, he was in charge of a huge computer technology company and was often in New York and other far-off places. He also said that he worked for the U.S. government, and his position involved travel to a variety of other countries. Though he always seemed available and eager to talk to Breck whenever he was online. The two communicated over the headsets through private messages and through text messages. Breck's mother, Lauren, was very tuned in to what her children did online. She often monitored Breck's computer use to make sure he wasn't doing anything online that he shouldn't be. At first, she thought of Lewis as just another buddy of her son, and she even talked to him a few times. He always seemed very friendly and outgoing and just wanted to have a chat with her. Over time, though, things began to take a strange turn, but it happened so subtly that Breck didn't even realize it was happening. Slowly but surely, Lewis began to alienate Breck from his friends and family. He ended up kicking Breck's other friends off of the game server and convinced him that they weren't his true friends. He said that he had overheard them talking crap about him. Under his guidance, Breck began to rebel against his mother's rules for the first time in his life. He said that he shouldn't have to go to church, and he lost interest in the Air Training Corps, which he had previously been very passionate about. Lewis's opinions on things were starting to become Breck's opinions. He saw Lewis as being an older, wiser friend who was teaching him the right way to live and who was teaching him everything he knew about computers. He also said that he could easily get him a fantastic career in computer technology, something that, of course, at 14, was a very exciting prospect for Breck. Breck's mother, Lauren, had grown quite suspicious of Lewis and was very unhappy with the changes she was seeing in her son and how he seemed to be under the control of this random internet stranger. She was very dubious of Lewis's intentions. She finally got fed up and took away his computer and phone, and basically anything that he could use to connect to the internet. She absolutely forbade him from talking to Lewis in any means. She even ended up contacting the police regarding Lewis. She gave them his name to find out if he really existed, if he was who he said he was, but she got absolutely no help from the local police. Since the conversations hadn't taken a sinister or sexual turn, the police didn't really see the problem. She and Breck's dad, Barry, even tried to arrange a meeting for Breck and Lewis that they would be present at. They wanted to see if Lewis was anything like what he was claiming to be. Lewis only lived a short drive away, but he always had some excuse as to why he couldn't actually meet up with Breck. He always claimed to be going on spur-of-the-moment trips out of the country for his company and all manner of lame excuses. And eventually they stopped trying to make a meeting happen. After Lauren took away Breck's computer, he 
he slowly seemed to go back to being his old self. He got back into doing his usual activities and all seemed to go back to normal. In the spring, he went on a long school trip out of the country and he seemed to be really optimistic and excited about life. He had gone back to being his old happy self. When he got back from the trip, he went to stay with his dad for a couple of days. And while there, he asked his father if he could go stay at a friend's house and unbeknownst to his parents, he took a taxi to Lewis's apartment. The truth was that Breck had never actually cut off communication with Lewis. After his mother had taken away his various forms of technology, Lewis had actually mailed him a cell phone so that they could secretly stay in contact. Lewis had then began to put his dark plan into motion. He told Breck that he was extremely sick and could no longer run his company. He wanted to hand it over to Breck and teach him how to run it. Of course, this was Breck's dream, and he was ecstatic to take on such a role. He surely saw the deception to his parents as being a means to an end. And so, on February 16th, 2014, he headed over to meet Lewis, expecting to have his dream career handed to him. Breck's parents had been very right to be nervous about Lewis. In fact, the truth about him would turn out to be far more disturbing than they ever could have imagined. Something unimaginable would happen at Lewis's apartment and result in an ominously calm phone call to police by Lewis, who claimed that he and Breck had gotten into an altercation and it had ended with him stabbing Breck and him dying. This explanation came nowhere near the sick truth of what had actually transpired in the apartment. Somehow, Lewis had bound Breck with duct tape and then stabbed him in the throat. He then took photos of the macabre scene and they ended up online. By the time paramedics reached Breck, he was beyond saving. And before police could even contact Breck's family, his siblings had been contacted by friends who had found out online about the murder and had seen the grim photos. It was the family's absolute worst nightmare and it got even worse. It goes without saying that Louis Danes was nowhere near the person that he purported himself to be. He was actually 18 and while he was a computer engineer, he was unemployed and lived alone in a dingy flat. He spent his days trolling the internet for young boys to groom. Breck, in his kindness and naivety, had been the unlucky boy to cross paths with him. When Breck's mother Lauren had called the police asking for help before this, she had actually given them Lewis's real name. But what they failed to see was that he did have a criminal background. A few years prior, he had been accused of sexual assault on a teenage boy but for whatever reason, it had never gone to trial. Lewis had been grooming Breck all this time to be his victim, but it had been done with such subtlety using Breck's interests as a lure with absolutely no sexual undertones that it was nearly impossible for him to detect. There was nothing in the conversations that would set off alarm bells and he didn't realize what was happening until it was much too late.
Lewis ended up pleading guilty rather than going to trial and was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 25 years. Breck's family believed that his case had not been taken seriously by law enforcement and began legal action against them. After Breck's murder, other boys came forward that had been Lewis's targets previously. One that lived in America had even tried to convince his parents to let Lewis come stay with them after he had promised to get the boy a fantastic job in computer tech. Thankfully, his parents said no. Breck's parents felt strongly motivated to do something important in their son's memory. So they started the Breck Foundation, which they used to get the message out about internet safety. Lauren goes to schools and gives talks about her son's murder to try to spread the word about the types of monsters that may be lurking online and the subtle ways that they may be grooming your children. In 2015, a documentary was released about this case called Murder Games. It is currently available on Amazon. Recently, local law enforcement in that area have worked together to produce a short film about the crime that can be shown to students at various schools in the area. Breck's family hopes that their efforts can save lives so that other families don't have to live through the same nightmare that they have. Oh, and by the way, that documentary was my main source for that story. And I do recommend it. It was really well made and, of course, heartbreaking, but it's worth a watch. My next story is a very wild ride. It's something that if it was in a movie, you would not believe it. You would think that's ludicrous. But it really happened, and it's definitely one of the weirdest true crime stories I've ever heard. My source for this is called... It's a book called Too Pretty to Live, The Catfishing Murders of East Tennessee by Dennis Brooks. And he actually is the prosecutor that ended up uh, prosecuting the case that came out of this crime. So, on January 31st, 2012, 36-year-old Bill Payne and 23-year-old Billie Jean Hayworth were found shot to death in their home. Bill's throat had also been cut. Tragically, their seven-month-old son, Tyler, was found cradled in his deceased mother's arms, alive but covered in her blood. This crime would lead investigators on a twist-filled journey with an unbelievable outcome. So going back to the year before, in 2011, Janelle Potter was a 31-year-old woman living with her parents, Barbara and Marvin, in Mountain City, Tennessee, a small town with a population of around 2,500. Throughout her entire life, her parents would insist that she was a naive woman who functioned on the level of a fourth grader. But once the story is over, you may agree that her girlish voice is mere camouflage to hide an angry, manipulative mind. Janelle had always lived with her parents, and her entire social life consisted of social media and friends that she had never actually met in person. She had been living with diabetes since a young age, and her parents continued to cater to her every need, even as she entered her 30s. She also had a variety of other physical and mental health issues. These, combined with the way her parents treated her, led her to live a life of complete social dysfunction. She had only ever had her parents as real friends, 
and they were dealing with their own issues in neurosis. They both had a history of being delusional and deceptive, two traits that would come to describe Janelle as she got older. She had never worked, never had a boyfriend, and seemed destined for a life of solitude. That was until the day she made her first real-life friend. One day at the pharmacy, she met a clerk there named Tracy Greenwell, who felt bad for the social outcast and befriended her. Tracy was a very kind person who wanted to bring Janelle out of her sheltered life. And through Tracy, Janelle met her brother, Bill Payne, and her cousin, Jamie Curd. Bill was in his 30s, cute and charming. Janelle quickly developed a crush on him, but the feelings were never reciprocated. And actually, soon thereafter, Janelle started dating Jamie in secret. He was a bit of an older guy who had also never had a relationship in his life. Despite her new friendships, she still maintained her online social activities, which included regular Facebook communication with several fake Facebook accounts that she created and maintained to create the illusion of having a bunch of friends. Bill and Billie Jean Hayworth had worked together for a few years and they'd grown very close over that time. Not long after Janelle met the group, Bill and Billie Jean became a couple. Janelle soon began to act very strange online. She had added Bill, Billie Jean and some of her friends as friends on Facebook, and she began to accuse them of bullying her and claimed that they were stalking her by driving by her house regularly. And when Bill and Billie Jean had their son Tyler about a year after getting together, Janelle started acting even worse. At one point, she was even heard to say that she wished their, quote, damn baby would die. Her parents were really no better. She and her mother, Barbara, would call Billie Jean and her friends on the phone just to curse them out and call them names. And they'd actually even done it to their faces in public on occasion. These young women were all terribly rattled because they barely knew Janelle and they were starting to get legitimately scared of her and her parents. They actually even tried to get a restraining order against Janelle, but it didn't work for some reason. And throughout all of this, Barbara and Marvin maintained the unshakable belief that their daughter was perfect and everyone was out to get her. They reinforced all of her delusions. One of the strongest delusions was that Billie Jean and her friends hated Janelle because they were jealous of how pretty she was. After many months of Janelle harassing the girls, a new person entered the fray, Chris Jaden, the CIA agent. Chris had begun emailing Janelle and her mom, Barbara, by logging into Janelle's email account and sending her emails right back to the same account. He claimed to be watching over Janelle and protecting her against her enemies, Bill and Billie Jean, who he said he had information that they wanted her dead. He said he'd been watching them for a long time and they were bad people. He sent hundreds of emails describing how he would watch their house to protect them 
and he would go on and on about how nice and pretty Janelle was and how everyone else was just jealous. He would also email with Janelle's boyfriend, Jamie. Jamie, at this point, had actually become somewhat a part of the Potter family after having a falling out with his cousin, Bill, over the whole Janelle situation. He had chosen the Potters over his own relative that he had been extremely close to. That was a bad choice. Chris's emails were full of just the most atrocious grammar imaginable and pretty much nonstop cursing, just fuck this, fuck that, fuck, fuck, fuck. In fact, you might say his writing style and level of aggression were basically identical to Janelle's. Wink, wink. Often during his emails, he would randomly mention how he was legally allowed to kill people because he was in the CIA. You know, even if that's true, you probably, probably aren't supposed to tell people that, Chris. Coincidentally, Janelle's dad, Marvin, was a retired Marine who claimed to have been in the CIA after fighting in Vietnam. This seemed like a great connection to Barbara, who continuously asked if he could get her husband, Marvin, reinstated with the CIA. So the thing about Barbara is, the place where her brain is supposed to be is actually just a big pile of mashed potatoes. Because despite the fact that pretty much everyone who ever heard Marvin's CIA claims immediately knew they were bullshit, Barbara seemed to have deluded herself into believing his claims even though she'd been married to him for a very long time, including while he was supposedly a CIA agent, and had never seen any proof of it. And the real sad reality is that none of the Potters actually even understood what the CIA did as an organization. So after all of this drama, which most of the small town had heard about, when Bill and Billie Jean were found murdered, Numerous fingers immediately pointed at the Potter clan. The family was brought in for questioning, and Janelle insisted to the police that Billie Jean and her friends had been bullying and threatening her because she was too pretty. Police had gotten quite a bit of information from peripheral characters in this insane saga, and they heard that Jamie Curd had a relationship with Janelle. So they brought him in for questioning, and within mere minutes, they realized he was probably the weakest link among the group. And after a very short period of questioning, he revealed the truth. Chris, the CIA guy, had been telling all of them for months that Bill and Billie Jean were bad people and had to die. He managed to convince them that the CIA sanctioned their murder as being legal because it's for the greater good. One explanation was that Bill and Billie Jean were plotting to murder Janelle and had already murdered several other people. So on January 31st, 2012, Jamie and Marvin Potter went to Bill and Billie Jean's house in the early morning. Marvin basically walked right in and shot them both dead without hesitation. He may not have been in the CIA, but he had been in the military and he was quite proficient with the gun and very, very, very proud of it. After the police heard Jamie's confession and the alleged motive for the murders, they offered him a deal in exchange for helping them implicate 
the actual shooter, which was Marvin. So they recorded, recorded a phone call between the two in which Marvin rather casually and quickly discussed his role in the murders. Jamie also told the police about his email communication with Chris, the CIA guy. And when they later searched the Potter home, they found hundreds of printed emails from Chris with pictures of him. And when they looked up the name, they found a guy working in law enforcement in a, in a different town. He, it turned out that the real Chris Jaden actually knew Janelle in high school, and she had used his name and photos to create her CIA agent alter ego. It was painfully obvious to law enforcement that Janelle had been behind all of the Chris emails, and it was probably a little sad to see her think that she had gotten away with it. And they knew that much of what she had said as Chris had, you know, been the inciting factors that led to the murders. So one of the takeaway lessons is if you're going to create a fake CIA or FBI or, you know, some sort of agent, don't use pictures and photos of one specific real person. If you learn one thing from my podcast, let it be that. Even though Janelle and her mother had not been present at the murders, they were both charged with murder along with Jamie and Marvin. Jamie's deal let him get a sentence of just 25 years in prison, and he would end up testifying at all three trials for the prosecution, all of which ended in guilty verdicts and life without opportunity for parole for the three defendants. So that's a pretty fucking crazy story, huh, guys? You really should read that book by the prosecutor, Dennis Brooks, because it goes really in-depth into a lot of the emails and stuff like that, and they're insane. It's just mind-boggling. It was a really enjoyable read. So thank you for listening to this episode. I hope to be back soon. Hope you guys are keeping keeping cool, keeping chill, or whatever whatever the kids say. And staying sane during this, uh, this, the year of our apocalypse. Uh, apocalypse. All right. See you next time.